Father, as we come to your word today, we come to a passage that reveals your, your glory, that reveals your wrath, and that reveals your grace. So we pray, Lord, that as we study these words, as we study this passage, we do pray that you would speak to the depths of our hearts, that you would show us what our treasure is, that you would show us what our idols are, that you would teach us to live for the glory of Christ alone, above all things. Father, use this time to sanctify us. Use this time to edify us. Use this time to convict us, to teach us, and to grow us in the likeness of Christ for His glory. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 19. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 19 today, verses 1 to 24. And if you know what this passage is about, you know that this is a controversial passage to say the very least, but also a passage that reveals things about God that we just cannot overlook. It was the biggest fraud that I can think of in recent history. In 1984, there was a congressional panel that uncovered what has to be one of the greatest scams, one of the greatest frauds of our time for sure, possibly in all of history. They discovered that somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 licensed medical physicians in America had fake degrees, that they had obtained fraudulent fake medical degrees from these foreign medical schools, some of which didn't even really exist. According to Congressional Representative Claude Pepper, Congressional Representative from Florida, thousands upon thousands of American citizens were receiving health care and treatment from licensed doctors, doctors who were licensed by the state, who had paid big money, not big money to go to medical school, but they had paid big money to receive what looked like a medical school diploma and medical school transcripts. 10,000 of these doctors were practicing and got busted in 1984. According to one man who was part of this, he was actually one of the people who was producing the diplomas and the transcripts. He spent three years in prison for, for running one of these operations. He said that he provided about 100 clients with false transcripts showing that they had fulfilled medical requirements of schools they didn't really attend. He said, quote, clients paid me from $5,225 to $27,000 for my services, end quote. To print out a diploma, to print out transcripts, fake transcripts. Who would have thought that among the, the legitimate doctors, among the, the legitimately educated and trained medical community, one would have found 10,000 fraudulent doctors hidden among them. We're not covering a parable today, but this does remind me of the parable of the wheat and tares. The parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, which alerts us to the reality that among those who profess to be Christians, you will find tares. Among those that appear to be wheat, you will find tares. You'll find those who claim to have had some type of conversion experience, some type of 
experience in which they thought they were born again. They may even really believe that they're born again, and yet they have never been born again. Today we come to maybe what's the most, the single most controversial passage in the Old Testament, maybe the, the most controversial chapter in the entire Bible. Liberal critics have been going at this chapter for about 60 years now. And if you know what this chapter is about, you know why they're going at it. And as we look at this chapter, we're going to see that Lot, a person that we've kind of seen glimpses of before, Lot will be the main character of this passage. And he's definitely one of the more interesting characters in the Bible. Not because his works were so great, not because he did anything that was so outstanding, but to the contrary, because if I had to guess whether or not this guy was a wheat or tear, if I had to guess, based on what we learn about Lot in Genesis chapter 19 and, and the other chapters in which he's mentioned, if we had to guess what, whether he was saved or not, my guess would be, well, no, he's not. Look at him. He's, he's living for the wrong things. And yet, I would be completely wrong. And, and I, I am kind of glad about that. It, it gives me a certain sense of hope that, that I would be wrong. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, that Lot was a righteous man. He calls him a righteous man. Now, Peter had the same things that we have, you know, the same information we have about Lot. He read the same Bible that we read, the Old Testament. So he had the same Lot in mind when he wrote that, and yet he said that Lot was a righteous man. Man, nobody would have guessed that. Nobody, even, even, even Peter on his own, there's no way he would have guessed that. But that's what Peter says. And maybe that's why Jesus used the parable of the wheat and tares. Kind of as a warning against being overly aggressive with those who don't seem on the surface to be saved. He instructed us that our responsibility is not to uproot the tares. In the ending of the parable, the servants asked the master if they should go out and gather up and collect all the tares that are scattered among the wheat. And the master's response is no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Now Jesus probably didn't have Lot in mind here. But what he's saying is there will be some Christians who are so sinful, who are so worldly, that you would think that they, were, that they are not saved. You would think that they, they never had a born-again experience. They never had a conversion experience. And so, he says, no, that's, that's not your job. He'd go on to say, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels. And they will gather out of His kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And yet, at the same time, we're told to judge a tree by its fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. And that's what makes Lot such a confusing, almost bewildering, mind-blowing case. Because from all that we can tell, Lot's life was characterized by the pursuit of worldly gain, worldly treasure, worldly pleasure. And yet God, who alone knows the hearts of every man, knew that Lot had been justified by faith alone. 
Man, who would have guessed on the surface? Just like you and me, the only reason Lot was righteous was because he bore the very righteousness of God as his own through faith alone in the seed who was to come, Christ alone. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 24. And the primary point of this passage is to show us the absolute, unequivocal, unquestionable worthlessness of worldliness. So we start with just the first three verses. We read this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, it's been a little while since we've seen Lot. It's been a few chapters. The last time we saw him, Abraham had gone to rescue him and all the other Sodomites who had been taken prisoners of war in a war that took place between kings and the land. But see, Lot hadn't always been in Sodom. He had lived with Abraham. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And when Abraham was called by God to leave his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans, Lot came along, even though Abraham was told to leave his family behind, his, his, his father's house, everything behind. Lot tagged along. Apparently, he knew that Abraham had been called, and he thought, man, I, I want this. This God who's appeared to you, I want that God. I want to know that God. I want to serve that God. So Abraham, I'm going to follow you. So he follows Abraham. And over the years, both Abraham and Lot prospered. They prospered both financially and and spiritually. But when Lot started to prosper financially, that marked, I guess what you could say would be the beginning of a very long, very slow, lifelong backslide. Living for the sake of gaining and pursuing worldly pleasure and treasure. The first indication of his spiritual decline was seen in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, where we were told that Lot looked toward Sodom. And of course, he didn't just like take a glance toward Sodom. No, the implication was not that he just looked with his eyes, but his heart longed for Sodom. He looked over, he saw that that would be a great place to prosper, and that he, he felt like, you know, life with Abraham and Abraham's camp was, was holding him back. He could make a lot more money over in Sodom. And so his heart is longing to go over to Sodom. God had blessed Lot up to that point with a lot, of, a lot of riches, a lot of things. He'd given him a lot of stuff, but Lot wasn't content with his lot in life. He wasn't content with what God had blessed him with. And so just two verses after looking at Sodom, we learned that he pitched his tents near Sodom. That's very interesting. He pitched his tents near Sodom. He didn't go into Sodom. He didn't go to live in Sodom. He just wanted to live kind of on the outskirts of it. He decided to live near, but not in the city of Sodom. You might say that he was in the suburbs 
of Sodom. He had all the benefits of living near a major city, and yet he didn't have all the traffic in the mornings. He, he lived far enough away that he wasn't technically part of the city. At least not yet. And maybe if we would have asked him why he didn't move into Sodom at that point, maybe at that point he would have said, you know, I recognize that Sodom is a really wicked city. I realize that the sin there is great. And I want to be just far enough away that I'm not a part of it, but I want the benefits of living near a big city so that I can get rich. And then finally, we saw in chapter 14 that Lot had moved into Sodom. He wasn't just near it anymore. He had moved into the city. Just like a moth being drawn to a flame, he couldn't keep his distance. And eventually, he made the move to downtown Sodom. It was St. Augustine who said this. He said, quote, Man wishes to be happy even when he so lives as to make his happiness impossible. And that's what Lot did. He wanted to be happy. He wanted to prosper. He wanted both. But he lived in a way that guaranteed that he couldn't have it. So this is the first time that we've seen Lot in like five chapters. And now look at him. Look at how far he's come. Right From the world's perspective, you might say he's done very well for himself. He's sitting at the gate of Sodom. In the gate of Sodom as the angels that we saw in the previous chapter arrive in the city. And this is an indication of the influence that he has in the city. They didn't put the, the, the lowest guy in the totem pole out at the, at the gate. No, they put the high, one of the highest guys out there. He, he's, he's greeting people as they come into the city and, and they, they want to trade. They want to make money. They want to buy. They want to sell. And he tells them where to go as they come into the city. He tells them where they should stay if they want to stay the night. This would have been kind of the equivalent of having a, a seat on the city council of Sodom. So he's an influential person. As far as the world's concerned, he's done really, really well for himself. But when you look at it from God's perspective, while Lot may have had a high degree of influence in Sodom, he didn't use it well. He didn't use it for the sake of advocating godliness. The city of Sodom is about to be destroyed for their sin. And if you read the first psalm, Lot is actually the exact opposite of the person who's described in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but Lot did. Psalm 1 tells us the blessed man doesn't keep company with the wicked, but Lot did. The blessed man doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but Lot did. The blessed man's delight is the law of the Lord, which he meditates on day and night. But that wasn't Lot's delight. And he didn't spend much, if any, time meditating on the precepts of God. He didn't spend a lot of time thinking about being obedient to God, living for God. The blessed man is, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and the leaf does not wither. But Lot, Lot was like a weed growing out in the middle of the desert far, far away from the nearest water source, barely surviving on the small amount of moisture that its roots could contain for, for months while the desert goes through 
seasons of drought. Were it not for the sheer, unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace of God, Lot would have withered up and spiritually died. He would have withered up and blown away like a vapor in the wind, like dust. Now let's be honest. Lot had only one reason to move to Sodom. There was only one purpose that he had in moving to Sodom. He wanted all the things that this world has to offer. He wanted all the riches. He wanted all the influence. He wanted to be on top of the world from the world's perspective. Lot is a picture of the Christian who loves and longs for the world. Is that you? He's a picture of the person who wanted to to live for God, which we have to presume is why he came along with Abraham. He, He wanted to live for God, but he also wanted to live for the world. Is that you? Is that you? Man wishes to be happy even when he so lives as to make his happiness impossible. Are you seeking happiness? Are you seeking fulfillment? Are you seeking pleasure? Are you seeking gain in a way or in a place that guarantees you will never find it? Because most people do. Most people do. Few find the narrow path. Most, most live in a way that guarantees they will never find what they're looking for. Are you wasting your life on worldly pursuits the way that Lot did? We saw in the last chapter, the theme of the last chapter was that Abraham was a friend of God. But Lot is a picture of somebody who tries to be a friend of God and a friend of the world. And it is impossible. Lot shows us that it is impossible for you to be a friend of God and to be a friend of the world. Just like Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You will love one and you will hate the other. You won't serve both. You can't. It's impossible. And Lot is a picture of that. And so now as the angels approach, it appears that Lot realizes that these are heavenly guests, but he also realizes how depraved, how sinful the city of Sodom is. And so he responds to them by bowing, just like Abraham did in the previous chapter when the angels and the Lord had come to visit him in the previous chapter. And then he basically tells them, Lot basically tells them, look, you guys, why don't you spend the night at my house? And then you really have no business being here. So you need to get out of here as soon as the sun comes up in the morning. And what do they say to him in response? They say, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to spend the night in downtown Sodom, out in the open. And Lot knew what that would mean. Lot knew the dangers of the city. Lot knew the sins of the city. And so thus he, he, he insisted again that the angels come and stay with him. And so finally, they come with him into his house where they have a meal together. And if you remember the way that 
Abraham served the Lord and the angels in the previous chapter. He served them quickly, humbly, generously. There's no mention of these things in the way Lot serves them, but we don't want to make an argument from silence. But they have a meal together. Lot does serve them a meal. But as darkness settles in on the city, the spiritual darkness of the city becomes painfully evident. So let's continue. Verses 4 to 11. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck them with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both great, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Now we know that sin is going to be present in any and every culture. Just because every city, every culture is made up of human beings who are fallen and who are sinful. However, there is an enormous difference between a culture that that has sin and yet at least has the decency to try and suppress it a little bit and a culture that openly flaunts and celebrates and endorses and advocates an openly sinful lifestyle. When a culture no longer tries to hide or suppress or deal with sin, it has become thoroughly corrupt. Thoroughly corrupt. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 make it clear that when a culture embraces things like homosexuality, it's a clear sign that they are under God's judgment, that God has handed the culture over to its degrading passions. Listen very closely to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 28, 24 to 28. He says, therefore, let's start with verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, For that reason, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So what we need to understand is that the overwhelmingly strong presence, the acceptance, the advocation, the proliferation of homosexuality in Sodom is an indication that they were under God's judgment way before this chapter. Way before we even reached this point. Before anyone has a chance to go to sleep after Lot has served the meal, all the men of the town, young and old and everybody in between, surround Lot's house and begin insisting that he bring the angels out to them. For what purpose? Well, they tell us. They say that we may know them. And they're not talking about sitting down and having a cup of tea. When the Bible talks about knowing, make no mistake about it. When, when they say they want to know these two men, it's clear they mean they want to rape. They want to sexually abuse these two guests that Lot has living under his roof. And it is absolutely astounding that anyone could possibly think that anything else, any other sin, could have been meant by what's said there. It's amazing that anybody would think that to know means to become familiar with. In 1955, D. Sherwin Bailey, a liberal scholar, wrote a book called Homosexuality and the Western Christian Tradition, in which he argued that the sin of Sodom wasn't homosexuality, but that rather it was their inhospitality, their lack of hospitality to strangers. And they are indeed condemned for that. They, they are rebuked for that in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. But that is just another symptom of God's judgment. You'll find it in Romans 1. Read a little past Romans 1.28. You, you find all kinds of wickedness. And Bailey goes on to make the argument that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't really God's judgment Rather, what happened is there were, it was nighttime and there were some fires on the ground and there was a natural gas that, that seeped up through the ground and consumed everything in its path. And it was the perception of the onlookers that it must have been God. They, they wrongly, and according to his opinion, they wrongly attributed it to God when it was just completely a natural disaster. In other words, Bailey was a naturalist. He's, he's ruled out the possibility of God before he even looks at the story, before he even looks at the evidence. He didn't believe in God. He thought there had to be a scientific explanation for everything in Scripture that appears to be miraculous. And that's what happens if you just take science as the be-all, end-all. Naturalism as the be-all, end-all. You, you, you have to rule out supernatural if you are committed to natural causes. And the reality is, while he may argue against homosexuality being the sin here, the reality is there are scores of texts, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, which explicitly condemn homosexuality. And the only way 
to escape the conclusion that God does not approve of homosexuality is to read your own ideas into Scripture rather than trying to gain ideas from what the Scriptures actually say. And clearly, I might add. So if the men were not there to sexually abuse, to to rape these two men, it would make no sense what Lot does next. He, he, he does the unthinkable. And I'm, I'm not even sure what to, what to say about it. He offers his daughters instead. His daughters who have known no man. That doesn't mean they haven't had coffee, you know, coffee or tea with men before. No, it means they have never known a man. And Lot's sin in offering his daughters, it's, it's, it's a sign of where Lot is. Lot is just as sick, just as depraved, just as sinful as this crowd of men. The men of Sodom, however, aren't interested in these two women, in in Lot's daughters. And so they reject his offer. And instead, they start getting hostile. They threaten to sexually abuse Lot worse than they would have sexually abused the two visitors. And they probably would have done this to Lot if the angels hadn't intervened. They reach out, they open the door, they reach out, they grab him, they close the door. Friends, the social elements that we see in Sodom are also seen absolutely everywhere in our culture. And we see that the Sodomites turn on Lot just like that. In a moment, they, they turn on him as soon as he tries to stand in their way. As soon as he refuses to accommodate their sin. They turn on him. Lot was a valued member of, of the Sodomite culture. He, he was their friend. He calls them brother. So he was their brother. Until he refused to accommodate their sinful desires. The sad fact is a lot a huge portion of the American church has followed Lot's lead on this. And they have moved into downtown Sodom. And they're doing everything that they possibly can to accommodate the sins of the culture, to blend right in with the culture, to look just like the world. And so their worship is like rock music. The ambiance in their, in their churches looks like a rock concert. They are trying and doing everything that they can to look and imitate the world in every way they possibly can. The American church, for the most part, has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And if you don't believe me, try going into a Christian bookstore, a so-called Christian bookstore, and look at the books that they are promoting. Look at the books that are on their end caps. There you'll find all the evidence that you need that the American church has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And that we have sought a God who looks and thinks and values just like we do. All the things that we love, He loves. All the things we approve of, He approves of. All the things we want, He wants for us. That's a false God. That is an idol. And these bookstores stay in business. Well, family Christian bookstores hasn't. So what do we do? What's the solution? We stop trying to be like the world. 
We stop trying to blend in with the world. We stop trying to accommodate all the things that the world desires. There are churches that send people into their neighborhoods to find out what their unbelieving neighbors want in a church, and then they change everything in their church to accommodate what their unbelieving neighbors want in a church. No. The solution here is not to accommodate anyone but God. The solution is to stop trying to be like the world. We stop chasing after the things that the world chases after and we pursue the things that God explicitly tells us to pursue. The solution is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to the world. Do not be conformed to the world. If you blend into the culture, and if the culture accepts you as one of their own, you should be scared. You should be terrified. Because that can only mean one thing. Jesus said, if the world's hated me, they're going to love you guys, right? No. He says, if the world has hated me, they will hate you. So the question is, do you you pursue the same things that the world pursues? Have you been deceived by worldly philosophy into actually believing that it's somehow loving to celebrate or endorse or or accommodate what God has clearly said is sin? Have you been fooled into believing that lie? That it's loving to celebrate it? Because from a biblical perspective, that is the most hateful thing that you can do for your neighbor. And if you've chosen to endorse or accommodate or celebrate sin, and I'm not just talking about one sin in particular, I'm talking about any sin, any sin, if you have chosen to celebrate it, to endorse it, to approve of it, you need to renew your mind. You need to not be conformed to the world, but you need to be transformed through the renewing of your mind. You need to rethink your values, your priorities, your treasure. And it starts, that's got to start with taking what God says about sin very seriously. If you seriously take a stand for Christ in our culture, those who reject Christ will reject you as soon as they see that you won't accommodate their sin that you might have the nerve to stand in their way and prevent them from doing it. Same thing that happened to Lot. Lot was on the verge of not only being trampled by these people in a physical sense, but he's he's already been trampled by the culture spiritually. But he's on the verge of being sexually abused, raped by these sodomite men. And he probably would have been if the angels hadn't done something to prevent it. So the two angels rescue Lot. They pull him inside. They strike the men of the crowd blind. And now they're not only spiritually blind. This crowd is not only spiritually blind. They are physically blind. Let's continue. Verses 12 to 22. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law. Sons, daughters, or anyone 
you have in the city. Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them, to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant your favor, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means small. Now, perhaps it is to Lot's credit that he takes the warning of the angels very seriously. And when they say, you need to, everybody in your family, you need to get them gathered up and you need to get out of here, he does take it Seriously, they tell him it's time to flee and he doesn't doubt. He's not plagued with doubt or uncertainty. The first people he goes to warn are the men who were arranged to marry his daughters. And all they can do is laugh. (laughs) God's going to destroy the city. Yeah, right. You're so funny, Lot. They don't take Lot seriously at all. For all they can tell, this is just a prank. Imagine being woken up There's somebody telling you, hey, get out of here. God's about to destroy your house. (laughs) Yeah, right, I'm going back to bed. That's what these guys do. And and in one sense, it's astounding that these men would think that Lot was just trying to be funny or that Lot was trying to pull a fast one on them, that he would pull a, a prank on them first thing in the morning. But part of what we gather from this is that they had probably never heard Lot talk about God too much. You know, maybe he'd talk about God being all love. But the idea of God being wrath, <laughs> that's funny. You said he's love. How often do we do the same thing, by the way? How often do you think about or maybe talk about God being all love versus talking about the seriousness of his wrath? So these men his sons-in-law to be will perish with the rest of the city with the rest of the city because they thought God's judgment God's wrath against sin was a joke and look at how Lot struggles with this look at how he struggles with it the angels have told him what's about to come they couldn't have made it any more clear that Lot and his family need to run for the hills you want to live you need to run but then we get to verse 16 And we read, but he lingered. Judgment is coming. 
Destruction is coming. You need to get out of here, Lot. But he lingered. He had his family together, but he was so in love with the world. So he hesitates to obey. All the stuff. What's going to happen to all the stuff? All the riches that he's amassed over the years. What would become of all of his stuff? How is he going to bring all this, all this treasure that he has with him? And so he hesitates because his heart is torn. He, he's double-minded. He's double-minded. He, 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 he loves all of his stuff, but danger's coming. So his heart is completely torn. He, he's righteous, but he loves all this stuff. He loves all his material wealth. So what's he going to do? He hesitates. He hesitates to flee from his sin. Friends, if you are struggling with sin, maybe you even know what God's Word says about it. Maybe you even believe what God's Word says about it. But you hesitate to run from it. Choosing to linger when you should be leaving. Choosing to, to, to hesitate because you're, you're divided. You love it, but, but you hate it. But, but God doesn't approve of it. And you don't want to fall under God's judgment, but you love it so much. If that's you, the time to flee from your sin is always right now. This very moment. I'm convinced that if we really knew how seriously God takes sin, we wouldn't linger. We wouldn't hesitate. We wouldn't play around with sin. We would get away from it as fast as we possibly can. Like it was a bomb that was getting ready to explode. Imagine yourself, for just a moment, imagine yourself that you are a prisoner of war. And you've been a prisoner of war for years. You've been chained in a room that looks like a dungeon for long, longer than you ever would have imagined. And they have treated you badly. They have abused you. They have beaten you regularly. And it seems like it's been an eternity since you've even bathed. And so one day as you're about to try to catch a cockroach for breakfast, a man who looks like an enemy guard rushes in opens your, your dungeon door, unchains you, and with an American accent, he says, you need to get out of here and run. American forces are locked in on the coordinates for this jail, and they're about to bomb this place. You have about one minute to get out of here. So hurry, run for your life. What would you do? What would you do? You'd run, right? You'd run like you have never run before. But imagine the man that smiles at his freedom and hesitates. Man, I was, I was starting to get comfortable in here. I, I, I actually had some good conversations with a couple of the guards last week. He hesitates to get out of there. And you think, what a fool! What a complete fool! And yet, it's no less foolish to hesitate when it comes to fleeing from sin. So how dear is sin to your heart? 
What are your favorite sins? We all have them. Are you aware of what your favorite sins are? Friends, do not be like Lot, who had too much love for the world in his heart to obey these messengers from God immediately. You have to see the urgency of getting off the fence, of, of, of running from your sin, of fleeing from your sin. There used to be a comedian named Jack Benny who would do this, this comic act in which a, a robber would hold a gun to his face and say, your money or your life. And he'd, he'd sit there and he'd him and haw for a minute, kind of hesitating to answer. And finally the robber would say, well, what's it going to be? To which Jack Benny would say, don't rush me. I'm thinking about it. And the reality is, friends, it's very easy for us to treat sin the same way. And too many of us do treat it the same way. Why is it so hard? For the same reason that Lot hesitated. Because your heart is where your treasure is. If you're living for the things of this world, it's probably an indication that you don't even realize, you don't see how vain, how worthless, how dangerous, how destructive, how wicked the things of the world are. Now, the things of the world don't have to be wicked, but when we value them above God, they are. Anything can be. And the truth is that the more clearly we see how worthless, how vain all the things of the world are, the hungrier we should be for heaven. The more we see the worthless vanity of the world, the less time we'll spend pursuing worldly endeavors and worldly things. If you remember the, the heart of Abraham's prayer in the previous chapter, the heart was that the righteous would not suffer the same fate as the wicked. And God was true to His Word. He's true to who He is. He, he is perfectly just. And so, Lot will not suffer the same fate as the rest of Sodom. Not because he chooses to escape, though. But because the angels finally force him to leave. They force him. They, they seize him. This is a violent action. They grab him. They, they basically pick him up and they carry him outside of the city against his will. Imagine that, being saved against your will. And once they're outside of the city, the angels urge him again to run for the hills for safety. But Lot is still so enamored with the world, so enamored with sin, he loves it so much, and so he tries to negotiate a deal with these angels. Why does he want to go to the town called Small? instead of running for the hills. It's because he wants a chance to pursue the world still. Even after he's been saved, he wants the worldly riches and treasure that he had back in Sodom. Oh, just give me a chance to start over. If you let me live over here, I'm going to be just fine. It's because he wants to go back to his sin. All the things that he spent years pursuing in Sodom, he wants to go back to them. And so this passage concludes, verses 23 and 24. 
The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It's interesting that God lets Lot go to Zoar. You want to go to this small town? I'll let you. Man, it's the same thing that Augustine said. Man wishes to be happy even when he so lives as to make his happiness impossible. Even though he should have learned so much from this, he makes his happiness, his own happiness, impossible. Maybe the worst predicament to be in is where you have so much love for the world that you can't be happy in the Lord, but you also have too much of the Lord to find happiness in the world. God might allow you to hold on to some of your sins, but He won't let you continue indefinitely to be happy with it, to find joy in it. If you feel a sense of happiness about your sins, I I don't even know what to tell you other than to examine yourself. Make sure that you are in the faith. Make your, your calling and election sure. Because the divine nature that God has imparted to His children will not allow us to find joy in sin indefinitely. Eventually, God disciplines those whom He loves because He loves them so much. When Christians live in conformity to the ways of the world, to the desires of the world, to the values of the world, there is a steep, steep personal cost. You're you're not only wasting your life, but you are guaranteed to lose your treasure in the long run. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. As you think about those words, apply those words to Lot's life, to Lot's situation in Genesis 19. God has promised, friends, that he will destroy sin. That He will deal with sin. That He will judge all sin as surely as He judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. And this passage from 1 Corinthians shows us that there will be Christians who come into heaven and all their treasure will be lost. They're going to come into heaven smelling like they just came from a bonfire because all the things that they loved will be consumed by this fire that tests Famous Puritan author John Owen once wrote this. He said, If our principal treasure be as we profess in things spiritual and heavenly, and woe to us if it not be so, 
On them will our affections and consequently our desires and thoughts be principally fixed. End quote. So the question is, will your greatest treasure endure this fire that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Will your treasure endure the fire that God will test your life work by? Will your treasure survive? Only if Christ is your greatest treasure. That's it. Only if Christ is your greatest treasure will you have your earthly treasure, the, 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 the treasure that you had in, in this life, will you have in heaven with you. Lot is a picture of the man who wants to serve both God and money. He wants to be a friend of the world and God. And in the end, we see that he loved money so much, he loved worldly treasure so much that it grieved him deeply to lose it. Were it not for the grace of God, Lot would have burned up right alongside all of his treasure. But what we learn from Lot is that the worldly treasure that he pursued, the worldly treasure that we might pursue, can have a lot of appeal to someone who has either never seen the glory of God or who has taken their eyes away from the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. Think about it this way. If, you, if you've never seen a sunset, it might be easy to think that the flame in your dungeon is the brightest thing you've ever seen, the brightest thing that exists. If you've never laid under the, the night sky and beheld billions of stars above you, it might be easy to be amused by looking at the popcorn on the ceiling of your bedroom. And if you have never turned your eyes, never turned your heart and your mind to Christ, it would be easy to make the foolish mistake of believing that this world actually has something that's worth pursuing and holding on to and treasuring above all things. Lot shows us that you cannot be friends with God and be friends with the world. God's wrath is real. And the day of His judgment is coming when every sin will be laid out before Him. But if you are breathing, if you have never trusted in Christ for your salvation, in Christ alone for your salvation, if you are still breathing and if you hear the voice of God calling to the depths of your heart today, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts and go on pursuing worldly treasure. But repent and believe in Christ. Flee from your sin. Repent, believe in Christ, and you will be saved from the judgment that is to come. The people of Sodom perished. Not a single one of them survived. Not a single one of them was rescued. But Lot was. And that's a reminder that God's judgment is real. That His wrath burns against sin. So run from it. Flee from it. Don't linger with it. Don't hesitate to get away from it. The time to repent and to flee from your sin is always right now. May God grant us the wisdom to not waste our lives 
pursuing the worthless things of the world. But may Christ be our greatest treasure. May Christ alone be our greatest pursuit. That He would be glorified in our lives as our minds are transformed. Our minds are renewed. And we learn to live a life that pleases God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for warning us of the judgment that is to come. Thank you for the reminder that your wrath burns against sin and that it is dangerous business to play around with sin. It's dangerous business to hesitate fleeing from it. But we thank you, Lord, that you rescue us. Not because we deserve it, not even because we necessarily want it, but because you love us. And because you have a purpose for us. We know that our days are numbered, Lord. So teach us to make the most of them by learning to pursue Christ above all things by learning to walk in obedience, by learning to glorify Christ in all that we do. It's in His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper